Previously on Texas Twiggy. In The Shining was the one who was supposed to be the most terrified, the most dejected, the most overwhelmed. That's right, Wendy Torrance. Or, if you're a method director, Shelley Duvall. And he was, he was hard on her. He was real hard on her. He didn't even like the fact, I understand he didn't really care for the fact that she had family there when I was there because he didn't, he wanted her to feel secluded and everything like in the role she was playing. And Stuart, well, he puts it more bluntly. Yeah, she, Shelly just about had a nervous breakdown over there in London. Every day, Shelly's time on set would consist of gaslighting, abuse, and screaming, whether it was by, at, to, or about her. And after all this, when Shelly was finally allowed to pack up and go home, critical reception of The Shining was brutal. And rarely, if ever, was Shelley's PTSD-inducing, enduringly traumatic performance even mentioned. And even now, Shelley's Wendy is not given the appreciation she demands as a character who carries not only the Torrance family, but the film itself. Welcome to Episode 5 of Texas Twiggy, a podcast about Shelley Duvall. I'm Emma Lehman, a longtime Shelley admirer and the producer and narrator of this podcast. Today's episode is a little different. We're going to be analyzing Shelley's character in The Shining, embarking on somewhat of a Wendy Torrance redemption tour. We'll be looking at Wendy through the lens of a trope known as the final girl, as introduced by Carol Clover, a film professor at the University of California, Berkeley, in a wonderful book called Men, Women, and Chainsaws. For this episode, I talked to a lot of really cool, really smart people. When um, I went to Parsons and when I studied performance art and then became kind of entrenched in it and really fascinated with performance documentation because essentially you're trying to, you're trying to document something that is inherently ephemeral. And I think that that, the nature of that just seems kind of futile and that futility I think is super interesting. About a really cool film. If you haven't seen The Shining, this episode might not make a whole lot of sense. So go do that if you haven't. You won't regret it, I promise. No problem. I have a, uh, I have a deaf cat down here uh, who might make an appearance. That's Bilge Ibiri, a journalist and filmmaker whose deaf cat I unfortunately never saw enter the frame, but whose presence was felt nonetheless. Bilge authored a piece in Vulture magazine in 2019 called The Discomforting Legacy of Wendy Torrance, which begins... It may sound perverse, possibly even stupid, to travel nearly 4,000 miles to watch a movie you've already seen dozens of times. He's talking about a 4K restoration of The Shining that he saw at Cannes Film Festival in France, an experience he credits for his own reevaluation of Wendy Torrance. His vulture piece is a plea for us to reframe our perceptions of Wendy. When The Shining came out in 1980, it was not received well. Reviews were seldom scathing, to be fair, but they were tepid at best, and if they made a cursory mention of Shelley's performance, it was not favorable. The consensus seemed to be this. Shelley's performance is overly emotional, comical even. It's cartoonish, garish, overdone. Realistically, nobody would react this way to the situation in which Wendy finds herself. 
The very character is, according to Stephen King, author of the original book, the most misogynistic character ever to be put on film. In 1981, a year after the film came out, Shelley was nominated for a Razzie for her performance. A Razzie Award, short for a Golden Raspberry, recognizes the worst films and performances of that year. Shelley was nominated for Worst Actress. So yeah, people did not like this movie, and people really did not like Shelley in this movie. Until the early to mid-2000s, when a sort of shift occurred. Shelley's Wendy, along with The Shining as a film, underwent a sort of image rehab. It was already happening by the 90s with a lot of other Kubrick films, this pattern where the movie is maligned at its inception and then, as though it has had a chance to steep and soften, is graciously unfolded into halls of fame and positive receptions a few decades later. Roger Ebert, who originally criticized the film and Shelley's performance, inducted it into his series on the best movies of all time in 2006. It's on dozens of lists of the best horror films and several lists of just purely the best films. Yet still, Shelley's Wendy is seen as a sort of side character, a blubbering supporting role whose inclusion is at best inconsequential and at worst an imposition. Bilge's article challenges this. I will be drawing on a lot of really good articles for this episode, most of which I'll put in the show notes. I couldn't interview every single author, so I encourage you to go read up on these wonderful theorists' ideas about Wendy and her role in the film. But the upshot is this. Shelley's Wendy is better than you think. Bilge writes, Duvall's admittedly odd performance has always been part of the uncanny, handmade charm of The Shining. Over the years, many have come around to her portrayal, to be sure, maintaining that there is something unsettling about it another one of the film's several bold, somewhat discomforting choices. But something strange happens when you see the performance in all its exposed nerve glory on a massive screen. It becomes inescapable, an existential fact. You can't ignore it or let your mind wander while watching it. You have to confront it and reckon with it. And looking into Duval's huge eyes from the front row of a theater, I found myself riveted by a very poignant form of fear. Not the fear of an actor out of her element or the more mundane fear of a victim being chased around by an axe-wielding maniac. Rather, it was something far more disquieting and familiar. The fear of a wife who's experienced her husband at his worst and is terrified that she'll experience it again. I, I really think Shelley Duvall's performance is perfect for the film because you really see this, you see her as a, as a traumatized person. The crux of Bilge's argument is this. Wendy is crucial. And really, she gets to have an arc. Jack doesn't necessarily have an arc. I mean, Jack starts off crazy and actually becomes murderous. Wendy, however, does have an arc. Wendy starts off fragile, weak, and kind of traumatized, like I said. But over the course of the film, she actually, you know, she shows how resourceful she can be. And it's not just that. Wendy is complex. She shows how tough she can be, you know, and it's not kind of this manufactured toughness. Like, you know, she takes the knife and, you know, cuts them and stuff like that. And, and she's fumbling with this stuff, but she really comes and seizes that moment without losing sense of who she is as a character. Too many movies, I think, tend to sort of make the characters transform too much. Here, it actually feels more realistic. 
that this is how someone like this would actually survive a situation like this. And the crucial, complex character of Wendy sticks with you. Shelley's Wendy is not the Razzie-winning, critically-panned portrayal so many love to malign. Wendy actually carries this film. And not only the film, but Wendy carries the family, too. At the crux of The Shining is Wendy's labor, both emotional and physical, that holds together her marriage, that holds together the hotel, that holds together the very movie itself. It's sort of like Wendy is holding everything together. She's this unseen force, sort of this like performer of invisible labor, both emotional and physical. Far more, I think, than Jack, who honestly, does he even do his work as the caretaker? I don't think I ever saw the guy like clean anything. You know, she's the hero of the movie. I mean, she's the most relatable person in the movie. I mean, Danny is, he's a weirdo. I mean, that's kind of the point of the movie. Jack is, Jack, and obviously he's a, you know, he's a, he's a, big star and I mean and obviously I think Cooper could relate to some of the stuff about Jack and his isolation and his and his frustrations at not being able to work and having to you know deal quote unquote with his family and everything but Shelley is the hero like or you know um, Wendy is the hero uh, she's the one we relate to she's the one trying to hold things together she's the one trying to uh, you know basically like <laughs> make things work out and she's also the one She's the one who does all the work, right? She's the one who's going around the hotel checking the radio and checking everything, and she's got the clipboard. We never, we never see Jack doing any of that stuff. I mean, Though Jack is hired as the caretaker, it's Wendy who really cares for the hotel. Several times throughout the movie, we see her cleaning the place, fiddling with some dials, fixing what looks like a heater. Her knowledge of the space, her interaction with the inner bowels of the hotel, these things indicate to the viewer that Wendy is the glue. In an article called Sympathizing with Wendy, the Overlooked Heroine of The Shining, Rebecca McCallum writes, All the research which I undertook around Wendy kept leading me back to the same perception of her, time and time again. It is explicitly clear and very basic at its heart. People find Wendy annoying. But, McCallum says, Audiences have misplaced their conceptions of her actions and behavior, which are not only perfectly healthy and understandable, but also noble and courageous. McCallum goes on to say that Wendy's character is one of the bravest, smartest, and most proactive women in horror. Let's put ourselves in Wendy's shoes for a moment. You are in a troubled marriage. Your husband has dislocated your son's shoulder, maybe even laid a hand on you once or twice. You are trying to hold it together for your kid, who seems to be having paranoid delusions and is insisting that there's a small man living in the back of his mouth. Your husband takes a job caring for a big, huge resort in the mountains, which gives you a little hope. Maybe this is what your marriage needs. So you agree, schlep your husband and son up this mountain to this incredibly foreboding hotel, where your husband's new employer casually mentions a grisly murder had occurred in a situation nearly identical to yours. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran a It's fine, you assure yourself. And you and the family set off. He killed his family with an axe. You all settle into this huge, empty, echoing, haunted hotel and try to forget your myriad family issues. Meanwhile, your husband is a writer who neglects each and every single duty he has as a caretaker so you're keeping the hotel clean and functioning. 
Come on, hon. Don't be so grouchy. I'm not being grouchy. And then your husband's drinking problem rears its head. Your son develops bruises around his neck. You're hearing voices and imagining parties that aren't there. You find some skeletons, and eventually your husband is trying to kill your son. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. And then... Whether you don't hear me typing, whatever the fuck you hear me doing in here, when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't... You're snowed in. You, your rapidly deteriorating abusive husband, your psychic son, and the ghosts of this haunted hotel are all alone, isolated. I think it's safe to say that Wendy deals with this how anyone would if not better. Wendy is the audience proxy. The interpretation of her character as vapid, shallow, and flatly terrified are misguided. In fact, Wendy's aptitude and quick thinking are very clearly and crucially displayed on screen with only a little bit of inference needed on the part of the audience. It's that the, the hostility and uh, the, the menace and the trauma is already there. I mean, we're not watching a marriage unwind. We're watching a marriage that has unwound. <laughs> um, and we're kind of watching the final act, really, right? And obviously, you know, it's not just the marriage, I mean, it's the whole family. And I do think that there is something very poignant about that, especially because we get to see Wendy trying to hold everything together. And therein lies another lens through which we can interpret Shelley's Wendy in the context of The Shining. And that is a trope called the final girl. So I am uh, Robert Hickerson. I'm an artist based out of Brooklyn, and a lot of my work revolves around horror and horror theory. To talk about this trope as it relates to Shelley's Wendy and The Shining, I called up visual artist and horror theorist Robbie Hickerson, whose project Backyard Stud explores horror as a queer space, using real-world fears about the safety of his two moms to inform a recreation of The Shining. What we wanted to do with this project, or what I wanted to do with this project, was essentially talk about how you can exist as like a queer individual while like operating within a world that wants to commit violence against you. And so I, as like a queer person with queer moms, I became really concerned, not necessarily for my safety, but for their safety, because they are like queer women who are older, like they exist as a potential target to other people in general. So with Backyard Stud, I wanted to just kind of talk about otherness, like its relationship to violence, and then think through how we can come together and make a project that evaluates that and kind of lives within that on a more kind of metaphorical level. So because like, you know, my interest in horror movies, it was kind of like taking symbols that were really relevant within horror in general and repurposing them to create like a more kind of absurdist and slow narrative. It's a really cool project one I wish I could have seen live. So we were taking like super famous, you know, uh, icons of horror. So thinking about like Billy Loomis in Scream or like Wendy and Jack from The Shining and kind of repurposing them into a narrative around werewolves. But Robbie had a great theory. And that is that Wendy Torrance fits a well-worn horror trope known as the final girl. I'm going to play some tape of our interview where we talk about Wendy, the ultimate final girl. 
Let's start first off with like what a final girl is. It was a term that was coined by Carol Clover in her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. And it was a way through which you could talk about a series of movies that were coming out in the kind of mid to late 70s uh, and then early 80s, the like slasher movies, which like marked a shift in kind of what horror was being produced and what stories we were essentially scared of. Previous to that, in like the 60s, you had movies like Psycho that were kind of about adults committing heinous acts. And then when you moved into the 70s, the the tone and the focus shifted into where you're focusing on teenagers. So you have things like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Halloween, uh, where the focus was around sorority, college-aged people, specifically, you know, women who would kind of meet these adversaries and then fight them. And then there would always be one person who survived at the end who was a, a woman. And what kind of Kara Clover gets into in her book is that the final girl essentially is the audience's proxy. So that's how we kind of view the story that's happening. And because of that, there are a couple of things, at least in early films, and this became later in canonized in a weird way where it was rules were put against it, but essentially like the final girl was desexualized. The final girl was relatively androgynous. So while her friends were off kind of like having sex or, or doing drugs or like doing things that were like deemed not super great she would be kind of the puritanical the like prestigious one the like super academic one the one who like had smarts and like was the good girl so final girl literally the final girl in the movie think laurie strode ellen ripley um, but then also had to operate within this kind of like appealing to both men and women. So she was sexualized to a point, but then stopped from like having sex on screen. And then the final girl, as she begins to kind of fight her adversaries or whatever. Um, Clover's book says that in slasher and horror films, the viewer begins by experiencing the film through the eyes of the killer or antagonist. But during the film, experiences a shift in identification to the final girl. Clover theorized, and this is kind of strange because Carol Clover has a very unique kind of perspective, which I think is worth critiquing. But in her perspective, because it's kind of like male gazy, but like in her perspective, it's this idea of the final girl kind of fighting over essentially like the phallus. So you see that like a lot of final girls get things like they get knives or they get like bats or what, what I mean, Shelley Duvall gets a bat in The Shining. So it's kind of like battling for this gender superiority. And then eventually the final girl wins in the end. Now, if you haven't spent any time in the humanities department of a liberal arts college, you probably heard phallus and either stopped or started paying attention in earnest. Without getting too deep into feminist theory, I'll give you some phallic background. Laura Mulvey's concept of the male gaze heavily informs the final girl trope and queer and feminist film theory in general. Mulvey uses the idea of Freud and Lacan to argue that classical American cinema positions the audience in the position of the male spectator, with the woman or women on screen as the objects of the audience's gaze. Thus, the male gaze. With the women or woman on screen being the object of desire, they are coded with what Mulvey so eloquently calls to-be-looked-at-ness, with the camera positioning and the male-coded audience possessing the bearer of the look. In this theory, Mulvey advances two modes of the male gaze, voyeuristic, or seeing woman as image to be looked at, and fetishistic, here's where the phallus comes in, or seeing woman as a substitute for the lack of a phallus, which Mulvey says reveals an underlying fear on the part of the male possessing the gaze of, drumroll, castration. If you've ever heard of castration anxiety, that's Mulvey. So anyways, Film Theory 101 over. Point here is, 
Wendy Torrance in The Shining is struggling over the phallus, which is that bat she's swinging around at Jack. And then her adversary is her husband, essentially, even though it's like there's also like, the ghosts that are in or within the Overlook Hotel. So Wendy is a final girl for a few reasons. First, you have the audience proxy. She's the one with whom we identify. As Bilge put it, Here it actually feels more realistic. This is how someone like this would actually survive a situation like this. Second, Shelley survives. Not just by chance, but through her own ingenuity, her own acquaintance with the space, and her own wherewithal. It's interesting to think of her in that canon because I guess she is kind of like older and more established, but at the same time, she's also, in my mind, more, has more agency. Like she's smarter because she's like, if you think about Laurie Strode survived by the fact that like there was a gun that killed Michael or in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the final girl survives because a truck happens to pass by and she hops in the back. Whereas like Wendy survives because she manages to break out of the window that's in the bathroom. She's using her intelligence, even though she comes off as being kind of spread incredibly thin and, and kind of cracking, you know, at some in points in her sanity. Third, the whole phallus thing. Wendy is the final girl. And Shelley's performance draws out this shrewdness in the face of desperation. Not to mention, without Wendy, there is no Jack. Without Wendy to play terror off of Jack's terrorization, Jack's crazy doesn't land. It is through Shelley that we as the audience experience the cruelty and insanity that is Jack Torrance. And it's through their dynamic, not just Jack's performance, that the movie is even scary at all. So yeah... I get a little wound up about that Razzie nomination. So she does kind of like embody the final girl. She does take like the the phallic object and like does war against her husband in a way that is incredibly, even though it is like emotionally fraught and that's a lot of because of like what Shelley Duvall had gone through on set, she does eventually survive. So there you have it. Shelley's Wendy is a masterpiece, an underappreciated cinematic triumph. I'd like to end today with an excerpt from Bilge's piece. Much has been made of The Shining's supernatural revelations, the existence of ghosts at play in the hotel, the great evils of the past reenacted and revisited over and over again. This is also why the film lends itself to historical readings, be they about the Holocaust or the genocide of the Native Americans or uh, the moon landing. But for all its nods to spectral figures and haunted house tales, The Shining ultimately seems most interested in exploring the brutality within the family unit. If the horror genre is founded on the idea of helplessness, in The Shining that helplessness comes not from a gathering of external menace, but from the terrifying spectacle of domestic discord and violence. We watch the movie with the helplessness of children watching their families fall apart. And the seeds of that violence are there right at the beginning. In the same way that he has, in the immortal words of one of the ghosts from the hotel, always been the caretaker, Jack has also always been the monster tormenting his wife and son. And Shelley Duvall's traumatized, unforgettable performance as Wendy Torrance is, ultimately, the key that unlocks this idea. Guess what? 
That's me FaceTiming my friend and script proofer to excitedly read out a text back from Ryan Obermeyer. He said, sure, I'd be happy to. In case you weren't here last week, that's the guy who has lunch and dinner dates with Shelley on the regular and who makes coloring books to support her financially. Ryan had agreed to talk to me, and I was absolutely thrilled. This guy knows Shelley. This guy sees her on a regular basis. This felt like the closest I could get to Shelley Duvall, like the answers I'd been looking for. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. Can you hear me okay? Next time. Hello, I'm Shelley Duvall. 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 Hello. Yeah, um, well, I, as a cis gay man, would say it's a gay show because of how it appeals to me specifically in, and who I was when I was growing up. And I think that's one facet of it. And then a, another aspect of it is how it's in the queer canon, which I think applies to all sorts of people who are represented within our, the larger umbrella of our queer community. Um, Texas Twiggy is reported, narrated, and produced by me, Emma Lehman. Our music is created and mixed by Olivia Springberg. Our research consultant is Sarah Lukowski. Special thanks to Avery Erskine for transcribing interviews, giving notes on endless drafts, and proofreading scripts. Thank you to my patrons, Ken Lehman, Dwayne Lehman, Xavier Hamill, Jose Armenta, Justine Springberg, Kelly Alasser, Liz Wheeler, Kavid Dassity, Sharon, Sarah Elizabeth, Dan Travis, and Sophia Pulido. Join me next week, and don't forget to rate and review the show on your podcast player. And tell a friend. Maybe four.